And a lot of times you're, you're looking for a single reason on why something works. Well, in a lot of instances, things work because it all works together. What I would want people to say I am, a, a great strategist, great leader. I am flawed like everyone else, and I have my moments where it's about me and it needs to be about me. Because I will chew your ass out in a heartbeat. It's not bullying. It's not a personal thing. There is an expectation to deliver. I truly do try to build people and not take from people. From the Chase Studio at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, you're listening to Circle Back. This is the show where Nashville's most dynamic entrepreneurs share their stories of startup success and stumbles. I'm your host, Clark Buckner. Today, we sit down with Shannon Terry. His list of successful startups is impressive and it keeps growing. D17, Rivals.com, 24-7 Sports, Outsider, and Spiny AI. In this episode, you're gonna hear how he built these companies and how he went on to sell one of his most recent ones for over $100 million. Stay tuned to hear how he did it. This episode is brought to you by financial planning and investment advisor, Haas Goodwin Wealth. Thanks to our media partner, The Nashville Post, and thanks to our friends at Lightning 100. Circle Back is a production of the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. Over the past decade, we've seen a boom in Nashville's entrepreneurial ecosystem. Hi. I'm John Murdoch, COO at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center. As the city's nonprofit partner serving entrepreneurs throughout the business lifecycle, we aim to be the front door of entrepreneurship in Nashville and a servant leader in our entrepreneurial ecosystem. In this role, we assess and identify the best fit for people looking to navigate the ecosystem, and we provide an easy way for successful entrepreneurs and business leaders to give back and fuel the next generation of founders, keeping the cycle of entrepreneurialism alive. For example, the McWhorter Circle is an avenue for leaders in Nashville's business industry to be involved in and help shape the EC's work. The important role that donations play in our operations, whether it's an advisor giving their time to mentor, or an entrepreneur or a business partnership in our programs, all helps the entire entrepreneurial life cycle. We invite you to learn more at ec.co. I'm told I was born in Alabama. I don't, I don't have good, good recollection of that. Very small town, 300 people. And it was as, you know, Mayberry as you could, as you can imagine. I mean, you know, we went for Sunday dinners, we drove over it before bedtime. I mean, it was, it was just, it was kind of everything you would want growing up. You know, the one thing that I always had that, that I don't know that everyone can say is there was never a day in my family where I didn't feel appreciated or loved. My family were incredibly intelligent, not necessarily educated. Um, they were hard workers, but we had a home field where every morning when I got up, I had family that was going to be there for me no matter what I did. There was never a day I didn't feel loved. Money wasn't an issue with us. It didn't mean anything in the sense of you know, it was currency to pay the bills. We had what we needed and nothing more and, and nothing less. 
I played baseball for a while, I played basketball, studied, and I worked baling hay, feeding cows, that kind of stuff. Shannon had the talent and the work ethic to lead his school basketball team. Mom and dad sensed sports would mean opportunity. You know, I was pretty good from the start. Um, I was decently athletic and I enjoyed it. I had great coaches. For 11 years, I went to the same school and I was really, really good, but it wasn't opening enough doors because the town was so small. So his parents decided to make a move. They boarded up our house in Woodville, Alabama, rented another house and turned that life down for a year so I could move schools. Um, and then things got going well and then here, can't, here comes all of the, you know, posing schools, you know, the investigation, we're gonna, you know, get you suspended, you know, you can't change schools. But I'm like, well, you don't know my parents. I'd always thought that I would go to a bigger school, quite honestly, than Lipscomb. When we yell change, they change hands, change! I didn't think I would necessarily be an SEC player, but I thought I would be close. I thought that was my, and I, to, to this day, I think that was my, my talent Smith. level. Control. So my options change. were Lipscomb and Birmingham Speed. Southern. Came up to Lipscomb to visit it. Coach Meyer took me on a drive through Green Hills and made me guess home prices. I'll never forget it. And so I guess I uh, guessed enough of the real estate values of these homes that he offered a scholarship that, that day. Don Meyer was the basketball coach at Lipscomb University for nearly 25 years. He held the record for the most wins by a head coach until Mike Krzyzewski of Duke dethroned him. Meyer was a big presence at a small school and a huge influence on Shannon. I loved him, loved him like a father. I think Coach Meyer and I were a lot alike in ways we butted heads. He was right. I, I look back and he was right more than I was, nine, 90% on everything. I, I didn't like the way I was treated at Lipscomb under him and I, I played with a chip on my shoulder and looking back, I appreciate and love him and respect him and I learned so much from him about building a culture, an organizational culture. Even back then, Shannon seemed to be looking through both a wide angle lens and a microscope, analyzing what worked and what didn't, especially in leadership. Coach Meyer, perhaps, is one of the greatest practice preparation coaches in the history of sport. I can't imagine anyone being as great as he was. You gotta keep the dribble low. That's excellent, excellent job. But then the games happen. And when the games happen, I think that's where the organization had a hard time walking the talk. I think that's where it became about records and egos. Kutchmeyer won a, a lot of games, but I really believe that you know his kryptonite was pride and ego on the stage. We'd be beating teams by 70 points and the stars or the best players are, you know, are playing to get their 35 points and eight assists and, and so forth. And, and that was, you know, that, that was one of many things. And again, it's not a, you know, I scored 1700 points there. So I'm not putting myself in, in either category of star or bench warmer. I played 
more than enough. It's it's not looking back. I think that he built a beautiful engine, and I think he short-sold himself of what the output of that engine could have been. I don't think he had the capabilities to, to conceive how much further he could have taken if he had been more resolute in, in applying those principles and, and, and had more discipline with some of the talented players. Now, the odds of being there five years and the four that I played, I'm the winningest senior in the history of college basketball. We lost 14 games the four years I played. You know, looking back, I wish I'd gone somewhere else to play and I wish I'd have been around him for four years to learn his organization. But I don't think I could have learned his organization being a coach or being an assistant. I think I learned it through the hard knocks, you know, of seeing it from, from the inner workings. It was plan your work, work your plan. Every day you got a little bit better. Everyone did their job. Everyone worked hard together. It was beautiful. It was life-changing. At that point in time, I'd never gone to church. Um, you know, I was, um, I didn't dress like the kids that were here. You know, I had a potty mouth. Never heard Coach Meyer one time say a cuss word. Not one time. You know, if you walked up and insulted me, I'll insult you back or may take a swing. When I went to Lipscomb, you couldn't wear long pants. You could not wear shorts outside outside your dorm when I was there. It was a different world. I think most people didn't get to know me. I think I was different. I was so different. Socially, I probably struggled all five years, honestly. I think it was, I think I was more misunderstood than I was understood. Shannon left Lipscomb with a degree in finance and economics and quickly landed a conventional banking job. I was a senior credit analyst and our job was to analyze small business for loan officers. So a loan officer would go and say, hey, this $10 million business needs a loan. Please help me make it happen. <laughs> and so the nerds, would, which I was, would go write a 25-page report of financial analysis on whether that business was credit worthy under those conditions. And so that was... That was a year and a half, terrific experience. But it, I mean, that corporate setting wasn't, it wasn't for me. I, I had no desire to be a loan officer or sit in a room and crunch numbers all day. Then through a chance encounter, he thought he'd found the perfect gig. Little did he know it would haunt him for the next decade. All through college, I was uh, trading stocks. I think I was in the sixth grade or seventh grade. I took my money that I had made farming and I bought my first stock and it was Walmart. And so I was fascinated with it. My dad let me have a cow. He gave it to me at birth and I had a cow growing up. And so that cow had a calf and that was usually about $550 I got annually for taking care of that cow. I mowed yards and so I had a pretty good stash of money. And then I RA'd, I was an RA at Lipscomb for four of the five years. I refed intramural games. And I want to say, I don't exactly know the number, but I want to say that when I graduated college, I had about $100,000 in cash. So I finished Lipscomb. And so I was 
trading stocks. And in those days, you didn't have real-time data feeds. It was called a level two machine. And you need a level two to figure out bid and ask and all that kind of stuff. The level two machine gave Shannon the kind of deep insight his inner nerd craved. It was a machine that showed the bid and ask from all the market makers. So if stocks say with 100 million market cap to 2 billion only has say 12 or 14 people that are actually making a market in that stock and, and they, they're competing to make the transaction by the bidding asked. And the delta between the bid and the ask determine the profit made by the broker. And so seeing those bid and ask, you can mathematically determine movements as they occur. I subscribed to a bunch of newsletters on, you know, things at that time. And then one out of uh, Brentwood called Gold Star Research that I was subscribing to, I called that guy uh, that ran it and he had a level two machine. And I was like a kid in a candy store. He, I think he paid me two, three, $400 a week as a contractor to come be a rider for him. And so I'm like, done. Shannon became the sole contract writer for Ted Melcher, a former insurance agent who had taken up publishing. His SGA Gold Star Whisper Stocks newsletter published investment advice on small cap stocks, a niche area other media wasn't following. Shannon would write articles, but more importantly, he had access to the Level 2 machine and the opportunity to buy and sell on his own account. I worked in the loft of his house, and I was 24 years old, and he's, he'd say, I need a report on this, hand it by Tuesday. A lot of the, the work of the companies that we were doing were not good companies. I didn't know that. He's way older, and we didn't go to lunch. You know, we didn't, it wasn't one of those types of relationships. When, when I got the lawsuit letter from the SEC, I'm like, I'm out of here. Ted, what the? Lawsuit? SEC? It turns out the newsletter was peddling information on penny stocks, an area mired in misinformation, fraud, and abuse. The feds accused Gold Star of swapping free shares for good press that drove up the stock price. So at the tender age of 25, Shannon Terry was being sued by the United States government. They basically had sued me for all trading gains with no credit for losses. And so the number looked, I think it was like $500,000, but it wasn't the losses. I remember going through a deposition in Washington, uh, D.C., and the whole deposition was just, just a complete crock of shit. It was, I went up there to tell my story. I went up there to, to, to like, help to whatever, and the question I was going to I'm like, I'm out of here. I, I think that moment in time is when I lost a lot of faith in just general professionals, because there were questions about things that were just so foreign or not true in any way. And so I came back, and at that point in time, I knew who knows how long this is going to take to settle. Uh, There's never a criminal investigation on me. I think looking back, it was a point 
of emphasis for the SEC to try to make an example on newsletters, and I was in a bad place in a wrong time. In a moment, how the basketball star's lifelong passion for college football turned his fortunes. The impetus for our business was the fact that I was a psycho college football fan. I'll never forget it. Holy shit. This will be how uh, media news will be disseminated. This is it. Meet Art Haas. He's the CEO and managing partner at Haas Goodwin Wealth. Most of our clients, when they come to us, have experienced some level of success. You know, our clients have taken risk in their lives, and so our job is to help them take the fruits of that labor and to maintain it and grow it. They work with their clients and their clients' families. As they transition from different points in their lives and then also to think about that next generation and to help them with educating their, their own families and their children and their children's children about how to you know, effectively manage the success that the previous generations have provided for them. Reach out to their friendly and helpful team at HawesGoodwin.com. Make your mark. Together, we'll make sure it lasts. Game time. Game time. Let's play a little ball. Welcome back on a beautiful September afternoon in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The Gators against the Alabama Crimson Tide. And a pretty good following hey, of I got an idea for a business. Much like the level two machine piqued his fascination with stocks, Shannon saw the rise of technology, what we once called the World Wide Web, and recognized what it might do for thirsty sports fans. I was a psycho college football fan. I craved it, I loved it growing up, and the minute I signed with Lipscomb, I didn't get to see the games. I subscribed to the Tuscaloosa News. I'd listen to Bob Bell and Bill King, 1510. All the information I could get is Bama Mag, Tuscaloosa News. And a friend came over and showed me web crawler. Never seen it. I'd seen the bulletin boards. I'd seen Prodigy. At that point in time, the bulletin boards were stringing together networks. And I remember he showed me web crawler. And it was one of the first days of web crawler. And I was like, holy shit. I'll never forget it. This will be how uh, media news will be disseminated. This is it. Hollingsworth throws it for the end zone. Touchdown, Alabama. Going back in time, Webcrawler was once the second most visited site on the internet. Think Google before there was a Google. And Prodigy, now that came before AOL offering subscribers news, weather, and other information. Called a um, college friend, got him Greg Goff. We met for lunch. I said, hey, Greg, you know, really think I want to get into um, uh, technology. And he was, he ran a software company, had just left. Amazing person. And I said, I think I want to get in technology. He's like, okay, I'll help you. And I said, I need to learn how to code a little bit. He goes, okay, I'll help you. And so... He helped me and I wore him out. I called him every 10 minutes. Well, how do you do this? How do you do this? I called him one day and I said, hey, I got an idea for a business. He goes, okay. 
I said, let's go to lunch and go find $30,000. And I'd modeled it out. And he said, okay. So we go to lunch. He goes, I don't have $30,000. And uh, I said, well, I do. I brought mine. He, and he said, well, but I can hire an engineer to do the things that you need to get done. I said, all right, deal. So we shook hands. I don't even know if we drew up a partner agreement. And we started Alliance Sports. And the brilliance of Alliance Sports, and Alliance Sports was this first team site-based network. And the brilliance of Alliance Sports was we created, I think, one of the first dynamic content management systems that were out there. We wrote that program, we launched it, and we started hiring riders. And Alliance Sports worked. We launched it June 6, 1996, two of us. The day I launched it, got in the car and drove to, what is it, Ash, Asheville, North Carolina, whatever. By the time I got there, we were getting traffic and it was working. And that business from the day we launched it just worked. The internet was taking off, but newspapers refused to put their quality content online. So they had these huge staffs, great information, you know, but they were, I, I fear that they had writers that didn't understand it, didn't want to understand it. And I feel that management at these papers were afraid of cannibalization because they couldn't have been that dumb. They, I mean, looking back, maybe they were. And so, so all the, the internet, online, digital, was a great distribution platform for content. And so we put a few message boards up so that uh, users could, you know, chat and share and communicate. And then we went and hired a bunch of just graduated J school kids that, you know, some of them had worked at county newspapers. They knew how to, you know, they wrote the stories, they were the editor and they even sold the ads. They were the origination, they didn't have assignment. So they were, they really hit our model, which is great. And so we put them in their lanes, created this network where we would attract users around their passion, which was college sports. And it, it really, it just took off from the go and it got better and better every year. Alliance would grow to 14 writers covering nine SEC schools and a few in the Big 10 and ACC. It did $1.5 million in revenue by defying some conventional wisdom at the time. You can't sell subscriptions online. No one's gonna pay for that. And I'm like, okay, they are. And then we went through a, through a phase on the internet where you can't have ads and then everything was subscription. Four years into it, we sold it for $3 million. And we had a bid, we had an offer for a million a year earlier from the same group and we were like, no. And now uh, they came calling again because they were trying to do what we were doing and not very good. And they needed to buy us. It helped their their case. And I said, Greg, do you want to sell? And he goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want $2 million. He goes, I'll take a million. And so that was that simple. The redemption had occurred, you know. My life was going as I'd always envisioned it to go. Alliance Sports was innovative in several ways. It realized recruiting was the big story in the offseason. You know you're going to lose June and July, okay? Can't do much any commerce in June and July. And so what you need, you need to extend your calendar, your, your event calendar throughout the year to run the business. So we knew we had August. They report, they start practice, and we'll own that space. ESPN won't own that space in those days. We'll own that space. So we knew we weren't going to own week one. We're going to own August. So that's your first start. 
and then September, we're going to be really good. You know, everyone's winning in those first four weeks and then reality sets in. So we're good. We're good. So, okay, what happens uh, when reality sets in college sports? Well, they start recruiting heavily. And so for us, November, December, and January, the recruiting thing made so much sense because it tied two and a half months of intense coverage window that we knew if we built that industry up, you know, we would have a much longer window in media. I met with a PR specialist in New York. He worked at Fox and one of the, he's really a brilliant guy, Vince Wadica. And he helped us kind of build this strategy well, where the newspapers aren't going to cover this, it's beneath them. And so they'll source you. And so our, our model was, we're gonna go in and do a better job on college over here than they are, but we're not gonna tell them. And we're not even gonna promote it. We are a college business but we're going to promote the recruiting side, the piece they didn't want to do. And so the fans, they came to us. They knew that we were college and recruiting. The uh, traditional media people just saw us as recruiting, so they happily sourced us and used our information. And so we had, you know, years and years of free marketing as we're, you know, working to beat the traditional, you know, media outlet. It was Shannon's insight, analysis, and forecasting that made Alliance Sports a success. Now, the new owner in a startup called Rivals seemed to be making a mess of it. So Rivals took me on as a contract consultant, uh, 100 grand, and I'm sitting in Nashville, they're sitting in Seattle, and after about two weeks of being in my new venture, Nothing going on for me, like whatever. You start hearing reports, you start seeing it, and you realize that it's just a scam. I think they were burning eight million a month. It was a textbook example of dot-com bubble excess. Rivals had raised $80 million in venture capital, used a sliver of it to buy Alliance Sports, and hoped for a big public offering. But it was a house of cards. It was everything about it was a gross misrepresentation. Sites that were getting 2 million visitors a day were getting two. So it was like, oh, I'll just send back and watch this. They were going to file bankruptcy. And they had hired a bank out of uh, San Francisco to liquidate the assets so they didn't have to file bankruptcy. So I reached out to buy my non-compete. Again, my MBA is coming from uh, experience. Hey, I want to buy my non-compete. And the guy running the account was like, no, nah, we're not going to sell your non-compete back, but you can buy the assets. I'd, I'd heard the numbers going in. The numbers in, were around 30 million or so for the group of assets. I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> I'm not in that ballpark. And we ended up making a bid for $500,000. And it was the only bid. Yes, you heard right. The company he had sold for $3 million, he had bought back for only 500,000. How big is it going to be was the only question. That 2000 to 2006, I don't know that a group could work harder than we, we worked. It was a blur. I worked for six years. I probably worked 16 hour days and I did everything that you can do. That business went from zero in revenue to 30 million in five years and was a rocket ship. Rivals was a licensed model. 
So with with Rivals, we did not hire riders. We hired a operations infrastructure. So we had 150 employees that ran technology, marketing, HR, accounting, um, you know, revenue, circulation, um, and, and, and audience acquisition. All of the content outside of the national content, the, the Rivals branding content were employees, but any of the team-based, fan base were all licensed publications. So if you take a publication that's, we bring them into our network and they're used to making 70 grand annually and now they're making 700, you know, they're, they're incredibly happy. The disadvantages were you had limited editorial control. These guys could write and do what they wanted to do within reason. And so you were hurting cats. You were always motivating. Everything was a sales motivation. We started Rivals for $2.5 million and we sold it for over a hundred. And we never needed any capital along the way because we weren't out buying publications and we'd have a, a, lot, of, a lot of employees. I did not like Rivals long-term because I did not want to be in a business where I had to constantly be selling my content creators, our vision on what to do. I felt that they generally looked in the past and we generally looked forward. Now, I don't know how I predicted this or knew this, but it was incredibly apparent that the world of dot-com was diminishing and that the new future was going to be search and social. You know, things like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Google. I looked at Rivals and I said, I'm not gonna continue doing this. Um, it is incredibly successful. I had a $125 million recap and a hundred and, God, more than that, with two um, incredibly large media brands and didn't do it would have definitely behooved me personally, but I wasn't gonna do that with my investors and I wasn't gonna do, I wasn't gonna blow it up. And so I said, I'm out. And so sold it to Yahoo, pretty easy transaction. And, you know, it was a great, and it was a great, great transaction for Yahoo. Yahoo paid just under a hundred million dollars for rivals. Shannon actually went to work for Yahoo, promising not to launch anything that could compete with him for at least three years. But all along, he was analyzing what audiences wanted, needed, and where they might go next. We got to build content for an agnostic audience that doesn't care if it's 24-7 sports or rivals distributing or some content farm from Tel Aviv. 24-7 sports was the next digital venture. If you're counting, that's business number three. And this one had a sharp focus on the fans, while at the same time, appealing to any audience. We put fans in five buckets. You have your, over here to your left, you have your level one fan, which is the diehard college fan, season ticket holder, and knows everything about their team, okay? Then level two, they go to a few games, okay? They watch them all all the way down to five. Five, the fan is, they watch a few games, but, but sports is social collateral for them. They use it for a job interview. They use it to pick up a girl. We said, we gotta go build that engine. I had a few conversations with people and it was always, we're just rebuilding rivals. You're just rebuilding rivals. And the investors and the people, most of the people that worked with me knew this thing's gonna look nothing like 
rivals. You can't build these businesses for you. You have to build these businesses very much predicting consumer behavior and how your brand will resonate to that behavior over a period of time. And I think if, if I have been lucky or good, it's my ability to, in the spaces that I'm in, do a pretty good job projecting what I think the next 10 years will look like. The first three years were hell. I put too much money and time and resources into the technology arm. The second thing was, I approached ESPN to come in and do this venture together, do 24-7, and they said yes. And then that deal that was going to be 50-50 became, hey, it here's the deal. We'll just pay you a whole lot of money to build this for us. And I was like, no. ESPN poached the writers and other talent Shannon had identified. And launched Sports Nation. So that three years, I had to start over. I said to everybody, this will work. What I don't know is how long it's going to take and how big it's going to be. So just sit down and let me figure it out. After 27 months, his CFO was using the word dire. I'm sitting here going, oh shit, this thing is getting ready to just kill it. Like, I mean, kill it, like, hold on. And he's, you know, he has no concept, even when it was taken off. The vision for what we wanted to create was nailed, money. The how-to of what we wanted to create. I was in third grade needing to graduate high school. And it took us 30 months to reach a hockey stick type growth curve. We figured out monetization on the ad side. We figured out how to reach the agnostic audience that I talked about. It took us, it took us 30 months. We just figured out the Facebook algorithm, figured out this, the Google algorithm, when to produce content, what type of content. A lot of times you're, you're looking for a single reason on why something works. Well, in a lot of instances, things work because it all works together. At this point in the conversation, we did ask, what makes your algorithms so special? What's the big secret? He replied, I can't, I can't talk about that. I mean, I, I tell you why, because the practices that we figured out, they still work today. And um, I think a lot of people are still getting a lot of things wrong. In December of 2015, Shannon sold 24-7 sports to CBS. While the terms of the deal were undisclosed, it's not uncommon for businesses like 24-7 sports to sell at least five or six times revenue, which would put the deal around $300 to $400 million at a minimum. A few years before selling 24-7, Shannon had taken his talents to yet other digital playgrounds. Robert Downey Jr. is going to be the star of Avengers, and so all the A-listers are moving over there. The franchise movie model now has triggered. It's the only where the money's made, and blah, 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 and you know all this emergence of nerd pop culture. And I was like, great category, and it worked right from the go. You know, we made it from this whatever to a media company in eight months. 
personally of the accomplishments that our team, that I have led, that is the one that I feel took the most out of me and was the hardest to do, even more so than figuring out 24-7 after 30 dire months. So I, I'm really, really proud of that transaction. Didn't really want to sell it, but I was also good with it because I knew, I knew I could do it again if I wanted to. Once again, CBS came calling and bought pop culture and comicbook.com. I think they paid $36 million for it, maybe $34, I can't remember. The next point of passion was the great outdoors, a category surprisingly unserved. There is not an ESPN for the outdoor space, okay? We've identified an audience. There's 20 categories, everything from hunting, fishing, camping, to the trail sports, to the water sports, to motorcycles, to biking. There's 20-some categories within this, this industry. It's $887 billion economic impact to our economy. There is, there is not a clear ESPN or CNN or Fox News in that space in the digital. It's fragmented to hell and back. It is the most highly lucrative ad opportunity in digital spending. There is literally more dollars out there than there are places to satisfy. So if we build the entertainment and news apparatus with the correct demo, that correct demo will cross over and, and consume our content that's in these passion, lifestyle, outdoor space. So we'll get deep and wide in one swoop. Add to that artificial intelligence and a new idea he has to go even deeper. We are building under our company Spiny AI, a engine that consolidates data from up to 100 different applications into a custom-built publisher apparatus that then spits out the analytics and spits out what the analytics means. Here's where your audience is coming from and why. So it, it's, a, it's a blueprint to how to publish. The piece that we're trying to perfect and build that will take us probably another year is the predictive steps that you should take now that you have the data. If this works, look out. If it doesn't, we're gonna need this to build our media companies. So for us, it's a win either way. There's a classic sports movie about a guy who saw what others didn't. If you build it, they will come. Sometimes life really does imitate art. Thanks for listening to another episode of Circle Back. Be sure to subscribe at ec.co slash circle back. And subscribe, rate, and review the show anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Haas Goodwin Wealth. Circleback is also made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. A special shout out to our media sponsor, The Nashville Post. And thanks to our friends at Lightning 100. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen, script writing by Demetria Kalademos, and production support from Gaines Allen. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circleback.